meeting, and I'm sorry about the slight, uh, the slight delay. Uh, you're very welcome to the first in the new series of the Weinreeb Life Writing Lectures, uh, so-called because the philanthropist Harry Weinreeb was the founder of the Dorset Foundation, which funds the Oxford Centre for Life Writing at Wilson College. And I'm very glad to see all of you here, including the students who are studying life writing with me uh, this term. This series is called Fiction and Auto-Stroke Biography. Uh, I've asked four novelists to come and talk about how their fiction connects to or develops from or has to do with autobiography, life stories, and biography. Life writing hovers on a shady, ambiguous margin between history and fiction, and this seems a good opportunity to lean to the fictional side and explore that connection. It's a great pleasure to me to introduce Michelle Roberts to give this first talk, both because she is a writer I tremendously admire and because she is a very good friend and an encouraging, inspiring presence in my life. And that is all the life writing you will get from me tonight. Michelle is a double agent, I think, in lots of ways. She is French and English. She is a poet and a novelist, a teacher and a dreamer, a flaneuse and a homemaker, a cook and a gardener, a lover of words and of pictures, a fantastical myth-maker and a down-to-earth realist. She is a compelling and utterly original storyteller, as you will know if you've read any of her novels, from Daughters of the House and The Book of Mrs. Noah to Flesh and Blood and Reader, I Married Him, or if you've read her stories, most, one, most recently the wonderfully visceral and funny mud stories of sex and love. Lately, she's been writing with great power and beauty about the death of her mother in stories and poems. A new novel is soon to come out called Ignorance, a story of two young women linked together from childhood in wartime, provincial, Catholic France, tracing their secrets and their choices, their families and their lovers, and, and their loves, and the tragic ironies of their lives. It's a wonderful book. I, I think you should rush out as soon as it's in the, the shops and, and, and get it. I recommend it to you. And I'm absolutely delighted that she's here tonight to, to talk to us. She's very happy to take questions after her talk, and she's already signed a few books, and she'll be happy to sign um, as many more as time allows after the talk. And she's going to talk to us tonight on the theme of fibbing, fact, and fabulation under the title, Oh, You Liar, You Storyteller. Please make her very welcome. Thank you very much, Hermione Lee, for that beautiful introduction. Thanks very much to Wolfson College for the invitation to come and talk to you tonight. And thanks to all of you for turning out on such a freezing cold evening to be here. Um, it's wonderful. We've got a microphone, so <laughs> without more ado. To begin with an image. A half hoop of light separates my darkness from hers. Twin hoods pulled up towards each other, shelter us from the rain, almost meet where light scythes in, slicing our blackness apart. The pram is a deep-bellied metal body. I lie in one half, and Margie lies tucked in at the opposite end, facing me. Is that a piece of autobiography or a fiction? The use of the first person can suggest either. Perhaps the employment of metaphor, light as a scythe, the pram as a body, points towards fiction. And people can't remember being babies anyway, can they? 
I must have made that up. It's the start of a story. When I say that actually I do have a twin sister called Margie and that we were taken out in a big double pram, people can say, oh yes, I see. So it's a fancy beginning to an autobiography. When I insist that I can remember lying in the pram, people look sceptical. That's a memory created by a photograph, they say. Perhaps it is. I've no way of knowing. But that half hoop of light seen from underneath, from inside the dark pram, seems real. In the piece of unpublished memoir from which I'm quoting, I continue, did mum know her baby twins apart? Was I still myself if, I didn't, if she didn't know who I was? She was God, giving names to all the creatures in her universe. But what if she blinked, dozed, and the creatures rolled to and fro and changed places while she dreamed? Age 10, I tackled that problem by thinking about buses. If the red double-decker that took us up to the West End from our suburb was called the 113, surely it would still be the same bus, even if at the bus depot they changed its name to the 142 and sent it off along a different route. I knew that twins had different names in different languages. My French grandparents called us les jumelles. Mum added once, and you were supposed to be boys. You were supposed to be Jonathan and Jeremy. What would it have been like to be a Jonathan or a Jeremy. I had to write fiction to work that one out. Growing up a twin, growing up half English and half French with a Catholic mother and a Protestant father, one parent from an English working class background and one from the French bourgeoisie, I didn't know where I belonged. Ideas of doubleness, replication, chopped parts still return to haunt me. Does being a twin mean just being half of one whole person? Twins are an aberration. As the second born, am I the mistake? Speaking English and French, do I have a forked tongue? Are twins a kind of solo monster with two heads and two big mouths? Does two as a number mean one plus one, or does it mean one fused with one? My conscious, rational mind may not pose these questions, but my unconscious certainly does. There's another twin pair, conscious, unconscious. If I get into a muddle thinking about twins, then I need to sort it out. If I get into a similar muddle thinking about fiction and memoir, then I need to sort out that too. Writing, writing fiction and writing memoir, is all about posing and solving problems at the level of language and form. Since the relationship between biological twins puzzles me, perhaps it can help me think about that between memoir and fiction. What will happen if I map one onto the other? So, to start with a difficulty, the difficulty of I. To say I involves a certain amount of confidence, owning one's power. For me as a child, I meant not my mother, not a boy, not my twin. I was all negatives. In silence, I read and daydreamed, and that was where a self got born, began to grow. Recently, I was in conversation with the novelist and playwright Nell Dunn, who told me that she linked her becoming a writer to her sense of having had a very squished ego when young. Writing was the only way she could find to let herself expand. Perhaps writing a fictional I may have the effect of strengthening the lived one. In this sense, fiction becomes performative, a rehearsal of life. A commonsensical view holds that the self is stable, firmly at our centre, in charge. This view can be criticised as it is, for example, by Carolyn Heilbrunn in Writing a Woman's Life, published in 1988, following, I think, 
a line of argument first proposed by Virginia Woolf. And the criticism is, you know, saying I is simply the comforting perception of people with plenty of political power and social status, used to their stories, their point of view, being taken as normal. Less privileged, different groups have to struggle to articulate themselves in public and be heard. They may have more complicated views on what I means. Certainly for many writers, who are not usually people with plenty of power and status, the self can feel slippery, even precarious. This can sometimes feel frightening, on other occasions exhilarating. For example, when I'm too lonely or unhappy, my sense of I starts to fragment. Who am I becomes a scary question. There's no one to answer it because I've temporarily fallen apart. This is different to, twinned with, the good loneliness of the writing self, the good aloneness, the longed-for solitude in which writing can happen. Losing myself in writing, losing all sense of time, three hours passing in just a few seconds, is blissful. There's no I, just writing and bliss. And retrospectively, a new meaning of power, not power over other people, but power meaning being fully alive. At other times, the ego resurrects itself. The self shouts loudly, I want, I'm angry, I'm sad. And at other times, again, the self recognizes its existence vis-a-vis -vis the state, signs its name, has a passport and bank account, pays taxes. Using I in fiction, writing fiction in the first person, you can play with possible and alternative selves. You can hold up a mask and speak through it. You can time travel. You can become possessed. You can abandon yourself. You can run away from home. You can play act and ventriloquize, become somebody else. You can also pretend that your novel is a memoir, as David Lodge has pointed out Charlotte Bronte did in Jane Eyre, when inventing and shoring up her own version of realism. Jane Eyre's narrative voice is so compelling, her eye so seemingly truthful, that I believe her every word. The illusion spun by realism is complete. Language creates this beautifully convincing illusion of reality. Language that is sometimes self-effacingly transparent, like a clear window onto the world, and sometimes as obviously material as stained glass. Bronte gives us an entire outer world via Jane's narrating voice, and a vast inner one. Reality in this version includes literature from the Bible onwards, dreams, folklore, superstition, fantasy, poetry and song. So I is a circle, the novel is a containing mind, and I is a straight line, Jane Eyre a particular character with her particular history striving forwards into her own future, and I is an acute angle, a fictional perspective onto the world. Not at all a narrow, limited one. Deployed by the cunning artist Charlotte Bronte, I opens up and swivels around the broadest of canvases. An I composed in fiction, the finished and perfected work of art out in the world, can feel more solid than I trying to narrate an autobiography. I in fiction has colour and edges. The messy I in autobiography may waver, hesitate, doubt. Sometimes art seems more real to me than life. And sometimes life only makes sense in terms of art. This perception, perception shifts and changes all the time. When I first came to writing memoir, an essay in a collection called Fathers, Reflections by Daughters, published in 1983, 
and another piece called Une Glossaire, a glossary, in More Tales I Tell My Mother, published in 1988, I was at the same time experimenting with the first person in fiction. For example, letting Mary Magdalene narrate a fifth gospel, The Wild Girl, published in 1984, and letting Mrs. Noah fill in some of the gaps in the Old Testament, the book of Mrs. Noah, 1987. These two passionate female prophets, buried alive in the Bible, just wanted to sit up and speak. Since they were not me, I could let them be questing, revolutionary, courageous. They could articulate questions that bothered me. For example, why, in the culture I'd grown up in, was holiness so split off from sexiness? Why was the creativity of having children so split off from the creativity of making art? Mary Magdalene and Mrs. Noah contrasted with what I often felt I was, wimpish, cowardly, two all over the place, living just moment to moment. Writing a fictional I showed me how much I loved making things up. Let me recognise the imagination, both as a kind of mind muscle and also as a place, sometimes inner and sometimes outer, a kind of translucent bubble, often the only place where I felt I truly existed. Writing a later autobiography, Paper Houses, subtitle A Memoir of the 1970s and Beyond, published in 2007, entailed discovering that I did have an existence out in the world and that I did have a self coherent in time, a self that went on through the 1970s into the 1990s. Through writing that story of my political and personal past, composing the jumble of memory images and diary scraps into a written, linear form, I saw for the first time that sequences of memory did indeed compose a self, that I was indeed joined up inside, just as my pages joined up into chapters into a complete book, and that this story of my I was in fact the story of being fired with desire and ambition, ruthlessly determined to keep writing whatever else was going on. Of course, there were other versions I could have told, could have made up, could have found. I'll come back later to these synonyms for creating. For the moment, I want to leave the 1970s, 80s and 90s and return to childhood, to those twins. When I was young, I thought constantly in terms of simple categories of difference, either or. Either I'm the good twin or I'm the bad twin. Similarly, I thought either it's fiction or it's memoir. Clarity, rigid separation of A and B felt safe. Anything in between, a third term, felt dangerous. Similarly, I thought either a piece of fiction is autobiographical, bad, or it's invented, good. Now, writing this lecture, I discover I'm wanting to think in terms of and. Fiction and memoir may have something in common. The image of the twins may be able to help me think about narrative shapes, about truth and lies. Two small stories about these two small words, truth and lies. First story. Aged three, my younger brother Andy, that longed-for boy who duly arrived, fell down the cellar steps in my grandparents' home in France, landed in some broken glass and cut his hand and arm badly. Only I knew that consumed with jealous rage, I had done it. Aged five, I'd tried to kill him. I'd pushed him down those steps. Every year afterwards, on those special evenings when we huddled together in the darkened tiny salon for a session of home cinema, 
and grandpère showed us his flickery, soundless cine films of our previous summer holidays, Andy would come up on screen, wrapped in a thick crepe bandage, looking brave and cheery. And all the grown-ups would coo, oh, do you remember? Oh, the poor little thing. And I'd shiver with guilt and shame and horror. Andy never denounced me. Age 28, I finally got up the courage to speak to him about this terrible event. He laughed at me and said, you were nowhere near me at the time. I fell over all by myself. And in any case, there were no steps down to the cellar. It was a shed at the bottom of the garden. <laughs> so I was left with the knowledge of the jealousy and rage I'd felt and how powerfully they'd fired my imagination. It gets worse. <laughs> Second story. Our North London suburb on the edge of a wasteland that ran into the countryside contained plenty of flashers. We children became expert at dodging them. As open raincoats flapping, they darted out of bushes and tried to bar our passage home from school. We didn't mention them to anyone, just coped. They became part of the landscape, inner and outer. One day, age seven or so, I arrived home from school to find the front and back doors locked and nobody there. A few moments of terror. And then I remembered. We were supposed to be having tea with my grandmother, the English one, Nana, a mile away. By the time I got to Nana's house, panting and red in the face, I was half an hour late. The grown-ups cried, but where have you been? I couldn't bear the humiliation of admitting my forgetfulness and being laughed at. And so I lied. I said, oh, a man made me get into his car and drive about with him. <laughs> my mother immediately put me into the family car and drove us around the suburb looking for the man. <laughs> After a while, I cracked and admitted I'd made the whole thing up. We returned to Nana's house. Nana looked at me and shook her head. Oh, you fibber, you storyteller. My mother didn't say a word about what had happened. Nana's words consoled me. I felt recognized. Story in those days was often used as a synonym for lying. I'd made up a story in order to get out of trouble. I'd told a lie powerful enough to convince my powerful mother to chase a villain who didn't exist. I wonder now, did I want with one part of myself in conflict with her twinned part, the goody-goody, to be kidnapped, swept away, enraptured? Colette, writing in the early 20th century about her idyllic Burgundian childhood, described that dizzying pleasure. How if a thunderstorm blew up and rattled the shutters, her mother Sido, always fearing robbers and predators of all kinds, and her anxiety newly stirred up by the storm, would rush into her daughter's bedroom, scoop her up in her arms, and carry her off upstairs to her own bed. The child still half asleep, but passionately enjoying being whirled away in the darkness, the hurry of it, the mystery. What did Colette desire for her readers? We're not supposed to ask that question anymore. If the author is dead, then so are her intentions. But nonetheless, I'll speculate that perhaps Colette, that great sensualist, may sometimes have wanted her audience to feel carried away, as she used to be. Perhaps I wanted mine to be as convinced by my tales as my mother had been on that one occasion. Writing fiction as an attempt at seduction. Roland Barthes once said that writing was playing with the body of the mother. It might be for you, chum, I thought. <laughs> for me, it was more like calling to my mother from far away. Listen to me, please listen to me. When I discussed Barthes' statement with the Italian novelist Dacia Maraini, she explained patiently, well, it's a fantasy, isn't it? A wish. 
I realised that Barthes was reminding me of the privileged icon of my Catholic childhood. Baby Jesus in his mother's arms, fondling her breast, her fingers pointing towards his wee cock. No place there for daughters. <laughs> I imagined, Bar sorry, I envied Barthes his capacity to imagine and lay claim to such a strong intimacy, which even imagined as a metaphor for me felt impossible, taboo. That difficulty became my initial subject. My first two novels explored mother-daughter relationships through contemporary stories interwoven with history and myth, all carefully composed in the third person to avoid seeming autobiographical or confessional. That's to say, bad. I was offering my mother my novels as gifts. Alas, they hit her like rocks. She loathed them. Too angry, too passionate. Still, she was my first muse. She helped get me writing. If I wrote on one level out of a sense of loss, on another, twinned level, I wrote out of fullness. My mother gave me the gift of languages, the clashes and play between them. She gave me bits of stories and anecdotes, snatches of nursery rhyme and song. She gave me a thirst for dictionaries. So deep down, I was starting to see fiction writing as embodying on one level an I-thou relationship. Though, of course, it was doing many other things too, not least exploring the making of a new form with each novel. After my mother, other beloved muses, always connected to books, came into play. For example, my father, an amateur writer who never managed to get anything published for Impossible Saints, which was a novel which also investigated biography and hagiography through retelling the life of St. Teresa of Avila and rewriting that medieval compendium of saints' lives, The Golden Legend. The lives of Flaubert and Mallarmé inspired The Looking Glass, and I added to my canon Georges Sand and Charlotte Bronte for the mistress class. Experimenting with biographical fact and story, I launched off from the biographical known into the fictional unknown. For example, offering an alternative version of how and why Mallarmé wrote his poems, or how Flaubert conducted his love affairs. So in a sense, fiction, invention, became the unconscious of biography. Invent comes from the Latin invenio, to come upon. And this image of creativity spoke compellingly to me. The writer-archaeologist advancing into the rock tunnel, opening the rock door, uncovering the golden treasures hidden there. You shine a light on something hidden in the dark. What was lost and forgotten is actually present and alive. This experience, creativity as discovery, feels numinous, brings joy. Once in a moment of reverie, waking from dreams, I saw that the precious treasure gleaming at the back of the dark cave was a golden sculpture of a mother and daughter joined at the base a two that was simultaneously a one. This impossible and mysterious image seemed beautiful and holy and true. Beautiful and holy because true. I'd found something I'd lost, that I'd once had, that I thought was gone forever. I lived by this symbol for several years. Gradually, the image faded back into the darkness, ceased to exert such a powerful effect. With my conscious, rational mind, I could now interpret it, if I wanted to, I could see it as an image of the oceanic feeling a baby has at the maternal breast, lost in a flow of bliss, la jouissance. I don't object to those kinds of interpretations at all. I enjoy seeing possible links between our passionate, 
bodily experience and our making of images, but I value the way the golden image was shimmeringly prelinguistic, simply present, simply itself. Later, another image, again pictured in a dark place, a basement room this time, succeeded it. A dead body on its bier sat up and began to speak. Later, when it too had faded and I was thinking about it, I realised that my novels tracked the movement from psychic death to psychic life, from silence into speech. The image of creating that recurs regularly in my dreams is that of discovering an extra, secret, hidden room in my flat. The dream prods me to walk through the wall and start exploring this new space, to jump into the unknown and begin writing another novel. This connects to, blurs into a second, twinned understanding of invenio, invent, which concerns what we may call heroic creation-making, sorry, what we may call heroic creation, making something out of nothing, making something that wasn't there before. In this version, the writer doesn't rely on a previously existing story that she can twist around or smash to pieces, that's to say, retell. Instead, the entire form has to be invented for the new novel, the structure built word by word, nothing to grip on, dismantle, rebuild. This can feel difficult, chaotic, painful, demands a different kind of courage, brings a different sort of reward. One of my images for this process is of a child going upstairs in the dark, not knowing what lurks there at the top, murderers or monsters or Colette's mother. Adam Phillips discusses these two images of creating in his essay on not making it up, in Side Effects, published in 2006. I'm sure that most novelists will have experience of both of them. Indeed, we may well swivel from one to another in the course of writing one single novel. What combines the two sorts of creation is the novelist's sense of mystery. She voyages into, I don't know. I don't know what will happen if I stand this story on its head and shake it. I don't know what to do with this blank page. She writes the novel in order to find out. Claire Boylan, introducing her collection of novelist essays, The Agony and the Ego, published in 1993, comments on how many writers invoke mystery as a synonym for beginning to create, how much they trust that dark inquiring. For me, the inspiring, galvanizing moment is always a visual image. For example, a dream image of an unconventional, big-nosed Virgin Mary, dressed in red, made me realize how much I'd always longed, as an ardent and priggish little girl, to have a vision of the Madonna. Only she never traveled to the end of the Northern Line. She preferred hot places like Italy or the south of France. <clears throat> I recognize that another small Catholic child, Therese Martin, back in the 19th century, had had similar longings. She later became Saint Therese of Lisieux. Here was the grit in the oyster for writing my 1993 novel, Daughters of the House. Saint Therese, an enclosed nun, was not, of course, a professional writer, though she did produce poetry, sentimental, devotional doggerel. She wrote an autobiography, The Story of a Soul, a text that her contemporary, Freud, might have appreciated as an appendix to his case histories concerning hysteria. That's to say, women's forbidden anger reasserting itself in disconcerting ways. Therese, age 24, dying of TB and writing under obedience, can't mention taboo subjects such as rage. Her modern biographers point out the traumas of her childhood, her early loss of her mother to cancer, her loss of her foster mother and wet nurse left behind in the country, 
her loss of her mother substitutes, her elder sisters, who vanished into an enclosed order of contemplatives, the Carmelites. Therese's desire for heroic adventure, forbidden to a young woman of her social class, took her in the only direction available, following her sisters into the same convent. Motherhood, the huge adventure of giving birth, also embodied female heroism. But Therese knew the risks, you might die. Some biographers suggest that the story of Therese's soul had already been formulated for her by her parents, both of whom had wanted to enter religion. She had little choice, given the constraints of her life, but to act out their narrative. Before she died, she told a correspondent that, in fact, she had wished to become a missionary priest, which, of course, was impossible. So she acted out her dream of heroism, firstly by writing to missionary priests across the French Empire, and secondly by cheerfully suffering all the irritations of communal life among unchosen and often uncongenial companions. In the story of a soul, she spins a wonderful, sometimes irritating and sometimes touching tale with herself at its centre, God's favourite and most charming child. All unfeminine ambition, competitiveness and self-assertion magically transformed into loving her heavenly father and humbly doing his will. I read her autobiography in layers, what's said, what's never mentioned, what's exaggerated, what's revealed through poetic image. Saint Teresa of Avila's autobiography, written in the 16th century, fascinates me for different reasons. In it, she's trying to tell the truth, but having to tell it slant. She's been instructed to write it by the authorities, the priests and inquisitors, to prove that she's a true daughter of the church. Potentially, she's a heretic. Not only is she having mystical visions, communing one-to-one -one with Christ, sidestepping all need for priests as powerful intermediaries between her and God, but she's also from a Jewish background, which is very dangerous. The Jews have been thrown out of Spain as infidels. So Teresa has to set to and create a narrative that describes her pilgrimage towards church-defined truth and gets her out of trouble. She tells of entering the convent simply out of fear to avoid going to hell after her death. Subsequently, meditating on a sculpture of Christ, wounded and tormented, she realises his loving sacrifice on behalf of mankind and so becomes a true penitent, truly seeking God. Teresa writes with a humility she's obliged to assume, both as a woman and as a sinner, tracking an arc of penitence, telling little teaching stories en route, but at the same time creating her story with well-judged rhetoric, intelligence, power and charm. She knows exactly what she's doing. She and her life win through. The authorities let her off and she can return to her work, reading, writing, travelling all over Spain to reform the Carmelite order. Hidden behind her black veil, the closed black curtains of her primitive carriage, paradoxically, she's a powerful woman, within the constraints of her time. As long as she remembers to perform her ritual gestures of humility, male prelates will listen to her and take her advice. Each of these saints, the Spanish Teresa and the French Therese, represents a twin sister writer for me, the other one, the one I'm not. Clinging on to their Catholic faith, entering the convent, they took the road I didn't. Both of them, writing such complicated and contradictory stories about themselves, seemed perfect subjects for a novelist. I could certainly identify with their struggles to define and assert themselves while they simultaneously deprecated and even hid themselves. 
I could certainly feel appalled by so much voluntary self-submission, even as I understood the reasons for it. Their stories point back towards that of St. Augustine, the founder of religious autobiography in the West. The Apologia Pro Vita Sua, a kind of retrospective job application, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, mixes life story, philosophy, theology, and poetry, and demonstrates Augustine's changing sense of what I means. At first, he's simply the subject of escapades and adventures and love affairs. Gradually, he becomes aware that he is separated from God, broken off and broken away from God. Human subjectivity, I, means lack. His fullness of being, which he has lost through original sin, the fall, that's to say through being born of a woman, can only be restored when he turns towards God and addresses him directly. Late have I loved thee. Now his I gains its authenticity from God above. Abandoning his female companion and their child, Augustine becomes a true lover in Christian terms, living out and spelling out his I-thou relationship with that mighty other. He's humble, yet as a male bishop preaching and teaching, he's got clear, unambiguous power in the world. Giving up self-identification with God could involve tremendous struggle and pain for a man, as we see if we jump forwards into the 19th century. My zigzagging in time connects to the movement of the twins, towards and away, towards and away. Edmund Gosse's father and son describes rupture, the clash between the religious father's story of the creation of the world and the scientist's story of evolution. The new I, forged by Gosse's prose, as he struggles out from underneath belief in a heavenly God, the Father, confronts the old dominating I of his earthly father. God, the mighty other, man's omnipotent twin, is revealed as an idol, which topples over and crashes into pieces. Masculinity as automatic source of power becomes problematic. Now the I in autobiography can address not God up there, but people down here, people out in the world. Virginia Woolf's memoir, Moments of Being, explicitly addresses a specific you in that it was written for and read to a private group of friends. She writes about herself, but simultaneously enters into a form of communion with others and with the universe. A lot of the time, she says, she lives what she calls a cotton wool life. And she says, a great part of every day is not lived consciously. One walks, eats, sees things, deals with what has to be done. The broken vacuum cleaner, ordering dinner, writing orders to Mabel, washing, cooking dinner, bookbinding. By contrast, a suddenly arriving moment of being, intense and abrupt, pierces through this cotton wool existence, shatters her, but simultaneously becomes, and I'm quoting, a revelation of some order, a token of some real thing behind appearances, and I make it real by putting it into words. Behind the cotton wool is hidden a pattern. We, I mean all human beings, are connected with this. The whole world is a work of art. We are parts of the work of art. We are the words. We are the music. We are the thing itself. Wolfe's important statement of her aesthetic, her intensely compressed thought, non-linear, every part connecting to every other, wonderfully resists being teased out into narrative, smoothed out into explanation. I take from it an image of a shock shattering the self into pieces, 
forcing a completely fresh perspective on the world, to be followed later by the artist's work of picking up the pieces, examining the shock and putting it into words and making something with all these different parts and bits. The resulting artwork is both original and given, both new and a restoration, as the artist discovers part of the previously hidden pattern. Once the work of art has been made of these linked images and exists sophisticated and beautiful out in the world, it exists as itself, as a literary form. It does not embody any simple sort of self-expression. I has gone, dissolving into an impersonal we and it, created by the linking and connecting dance of art. This new sense of we binds reader and writer into a new compact between equals. God as author vanishes. I can now refer to the social, the political. Saying I can become a form of bearing witness, reporting back to other human beings. An obvious example of this is war memoir. Collectively experienced trauma such as war can seem to erase human individual consciousness through the death and suffering imposed on whole populations and armies to obliterate the value of human life altogether. And yet, certain individuals survive and testify. Perhaps Robert Graves wrote his autobiography, Goodbye to All That, about his experiences in the trenches in France during the First World War, under the same kind of compulsion that Virginia Woolf describes. The shock comes, the self shatters, the images must be assembled and reassembled. Graves' tone, however, is very different to Wolfe's. He strikes a pose of the sardonic looker-on. He begins goodbye to all that with a wry flourish at tradition. As a proof of my readiness to accept autobiographical convention, let me at once record my two earliest memories. These turn out to be, one, being held up at a window to watch a procession of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897, when he's two years old, and two, gazing despondently at a cupboard full of octavo volumes of Shakespeare, a memory that's obviously glossed by his later adult capacity to read. I don't believe at two <laughs> Graves was reading Shakespeare. Graves moves on to give what he calls a passport description of myself, and then to record the facts of his family background, which immediately begin to transform themselves into crisp, neat vignettes, such as this telling sketch of his German relatives, they are not heavy drinkers either. My grandfather, as a student at the regular university drunks, had a habit of pouring superfluous beer into his 1840-ish riding boots when nobody was watching. He brought up his children to speak English at home and always looked to England as the centre of culture and progress. The women were noble and patient and used to keep their eyes on the ground when out walking. That passage demonstrates just a few aspects of Graves' style, which I'd sum up as a powerful mixture of deadpan humour, irony, the mixing of hearsay and direct and indirect speech, a poet's aptitude for compression and condensation, the use of the telling detail. These expertly deployed literary techniques let him put a binding shape on what seem unspeakable and sprawling horrors, thousands of young men's squalid and agonised death. He transforms the stinking facts of gas, rotting bodies, urine and excrement, blood, into amusing anecdotes. Terror, grief and rage can be contained inside these little boxes of wit. Or if they do surface as the physical symptoms he suffered after the war, they can be laconically referred to as bad nerves. 
Graves may be read now as giving proof of the existence of the male hysteric, a category explored by Elaine Showalter and also Juliet Mitchell. But in his text, he does not emphasize medical or psychoanalytical diagnoses, nor does he describe himself as a victim. His wry, mocking persona sees him through. The reader becomes Graves' witness, hence the war's witness. He brings nameless and speechless trauma out of the unconscious into the external world of language, into being heard through being read, out of timelessness, the eternal present of trauma, into time, the time of a story being told. He does this with skipping lightness like a juggler, a tightrope walker, a stand-up comic, racing from one punchline to the next. He's a shapeshifter too, a man of disguises, holding up one absurd self-portrait after another. This, the identity which his membership of the upper class has foisted upon him, for which his education at public school has prepared him, that identity of English gentleman is now repudiated. It has been destroyed by the wall, a costume, a uniform riddled with bullet holes. From now on, Graves will define himself as a writer, a poet, and also an exile. He recognizes how few people want to listen to his account of the war. He leaves his marriage. He closes his account with his departure for Mallorca. In Goodbye to All That, two story shapes, twins, intertwine. The story of the making of a gentleman and of the death of a gentleman, and the story of the making of a poet, a man who can show his vulnerability, who distrusts conventional forms of power. Women witnessed and participated in the war from different perspectives. Graves laconically and dryly describes French women's rape by soldiers, their employment as prostitutes servicing the soldiers. What of the French communities struggling to survive? Émilie Carle, born in 1900, atheist and socialist author of Une soupe aux herbes sauvages, a wild herb soup, published in 1977, describes how in her impoverished mountain commune, the women, children and older people necessarily took over the farm work. All the horses and donkeys having been requisitioned by the army, they had to make do with old nags. Karl, in Avril Goldberger's translation, sums up. The war went on. It dragged on endlessly. I saw three main stages. First, the men leaving. Then the emptiness. And finally, the return. But most of them came back feet first. Here and there, death notices reached the villages, and we picked up the habit of calling them by the new name they'd earned, dead on the field of honor. They came back with their lovely decorations, but they had no use for them. They were dead in the prime of life, irretrievably gone. Karl stresses her struggle for education, her training as a teacher who returns to her childhood village to run the local school. Hers is an exemplary story, merging her I into you and we. Look, you too can get an education, learn to think for yourself, stand up for justice. She's an optimist. She doesn't think she's got to leave her earlier self behind and say goodbye to all that. She believes in history and that it nourishes us. She's an optimist. Where are my twins now? What do I think now? Are memoir and fiction still as much at odds as I grew up believing? I may have sounded naive in even posing these questions. Amateurs of French biofiction, or what cultural historian and critic Marina Warner has referred to as autobiographiction, would just write them off, invoking a particular philosophical view. 
Reality cannot be known, so autobiography is really the same as fiction. But I've needed to work things out for myself, to pursue a historical narrative, to invoke literary history. Reading these autobiographers I've mentioned above, I'm discovering they employ and devise narrative shapes recognisable to readers of fiction in order to express their truths. And I've discovered, too, that these truths are not simply factual truths, but also poetic truths, psychic truths, imaginative truths. Part of the mind's activity, they don't sit quietly waiting to be pigeonholed into the literary slots of either fiction or memoir. They don't sit quietly waiting to be remembered, tidy as sheets and pillowcases on a shelf. They jump up when they want to and shake themselves out, make a lovely mess. They have to be put into order, recomposed. A sheet may make a tent, a magic carpet, a shroud. A pillowcase may make a swag bag, a bandage, a gag. Memory means recreating. The past is lost. In particular, childhood is lost. In this sense, as Richard Wainwright has written, any autobiography is a making up of what's gone, therefore tips towards fiction. Colette hints at this in Belle Saison, quoted and translated by her biographer, Judith Thurman. If a child could tell about his childhood while he's passing through it, his true childhood, his account would perhaps be nothing more than one of intimate dramas and disappointments. But he only writes having attained adulthood. However, he believes that he has preserved the memories of his childhood intact. I mistrust even my own. So Colette sets to and invents the child she may have been, perhaps the child she wants us to believe she was. Thurman warns us that when Colette seems at her most disingenuous, she's at her most opaque. Colette, who had a day job for a while as a music hall performer, knew all about striptease, a dance of veils. Now you see me, now you don't. One literary precedent for this kind of autobiography theatre comes in Georges Sand's Lettre d'un Voyageur, an account of her travels in northern Italy, where she writes as a young man. We could also note Gertrude Stein, author of the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Stein disguised herself as Alice Toklas in order to write about her own genius. Colette, mimic, actor, storyteller, took up, or made up, images of her childhood, her mother, in her masterpiece, La Naissance du Jour, Break of Day. She invents a new form, one that combines autobiography, fiction, letters, and elegy. It's classified as a novel by most critics, yet contains a narrator character called Colette, who seems very like the author herself. But the author warns her readers early on, am I portraying myself? Have patience, this is only my model. Colette's mixtures of fiction and autobiography allow her to rehearse and reinvent her dance to and fro and around her mother Sido in the Burgundian house, village and woods. She returns over and over to that maternal goddess for whom, from whom she must also over and over escape embroidering her theme of mother-daughter complications, twisted threads, dropped stitches. She reminds me of other stories, of Rapunzel and her witch mother sealed away in their tower, of Psyche and Demeter composing a myth of earth and underworld, of winter and spring. Colette's a good pagan. She avoids the nostalgia involved in overly mourning Paradise Lost. Carolyn Heilbrunn, writing about women autobiographers, considers that nostalgia veils anger. Perhaps it does for men too. John McGahn is angry then, 
when he rhapsodically remembers walking the flowery Irish lanes with his beloved mother, who abandons him by dying. Graves is angry then, when he writes of walking the paradisal Welsh hills, well known from his childhood holidays, in intervals of the war. But then paradise regained may be the making of art. Colette writes of the earthly paradise, the eternal now. Being born of woman is not a cause of despair, because it leads to death, as those stern old early Christians thought, but a cause for joy, because it means we can live now as fully and as joyfully as possible. To halt the zigzag between the twins, bumping against each other, turning back to play with each other, caress each other, now the moment has arrived when they jump out of the pram, the playpen, the shared bedroom, when they start to learn to utter not only the secret language of twin-speak, but all the languages they will need for survival in this world. They can live in separate houses now, and they can run in and out of each other's houses all day long. The house of fiction, the house of memoir, detached and semi-detached. Thank you. the writer has got an obligation to express in either an author's note at the end or in the beginning what the sort of balance within a book is or it's just I've come across some books that appear to be a sort of history you know biography thing and then you find something that's clearly not correct and it sort of leaves you wondering about the balance and so mm. on could you say something about that mm. I mean it does seem to me it's it's fairly recently that so many books are being written in a way that is boundary crossing and playing with genre. So clearly, a lot of people are feeling as muddled as I was when I was thinking about it. I suppose I think an author might help her readers by saying in a foreword what she might think she's doing. According to all the literary theory that is still in vogue, it's only the reader, really, who's got that power to decide <laughs> what the author's done and what she, the reader, thinks about it. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong in, a, in an author perhaps saying in a foreword, um, I've set myself a very interesting problem with this book and perhaps naming the problem. I don't know about notes as such, but that's my feeling at the moment. Michelle, I, want I, want, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your own work. Um, you start with the sort of primal scene of the twin, the twin sisters in the, in the pram. Um, and you talked later on very fascinatingly about how certain images, certain scenes will, um, like the, 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 the secret room in the house, the room you can never find in the house, are scenes which haunt you. And I want to know whether in your fiction uh, there are scenes which, um, which dog you, which haunt you, scenes which you keep need to to put into your books, uh, images or scenes, which perhaps have something to do with your own life. Um, and whether there is a, a sense that, although you are writing many different kinds of fictional mm. works, whether there are kind of primal scenes that keep coming back at you. Mm. I think they're always there, and sometimes they're more evident and apparent in what I'm writing than at other times, because they might be relevant. 
I think there's nearly always the figure of, of the mother and the father, sometimes quite separated, particularly the mother, I think, because she was such a powerful first muse. Um, I always have nuns in my books, and I always know a book's going to be all right if it's got a nun in it. Because <laughs> um, I so passionately wanted to be a nun and had a religious vocation until I went to university, and then I suddenly lost it, standing outside the, the library um, with my arms full of books and realizing I could stay up all night to read. And that was bliss. And if I went to the convent to be a Carmelite like St. Therese, they wouldn't let me sit up all night reading. So I lost my religious vocation, not because I discovered sex as might be a better story because I discovered reading. <laughs> so nuns, I always know something's really alive if a nun pops up. Um, returning to what you were saying about um, experience as a sort of lost paradise and then a means of regaining it uh, in sort of fictional hypothesis, which you're going to explore what was lost, um, where do you stand on uh, the use of fiction or, or narration to create sort of unexplorable dark spaces in the sense that in a narration, something which is left unexplained, especially in a fictional narration, is unexplorable uh, because there's no reality sort of underpinning it. So I mean, often one of the most fulfilling things in fiction is it's pointing out towards or illuminating dark spaces which actually you can't explore any further, um, you know, because there isn't a reality which you can go and check and then explore. Um, so I mean, like, do you think that's... Um, actually one of the values of, of fiction. But it also, like, you just reminded me, in Goodbye to All That, there's that great story of, uh, I don't know if it's Mallory, or the, the rock climber who uh, retrieves his pipe from uh, a ledge that no one could climb to, and it's never, you're never able to explain how he was able to get his pipe, because it was uh, this, in, this, in this sort of impossible climb. And so it remains in his story this always unexplorable unrecoverable reality how Mallory got to that pipe uh, got to that ledge to get his pipe um, so I mean I suppose in a way this story is reminding me maybe that's sort of like an emblem of sort of the way in which narration can create uh, well loss sort of moments of loss unexplorable spaces I, mean, I think that's the paradox really that um, you're trying to explore something which which is imaginary and by exploring it you're making it exist but simultaneously, it's often an impossible, invisible place or space. As I suppose that's the delight of making art, that you can work with such contradictions and such paradoxes and such impossibilities. And that's the real joy of it, that you don't have to follow logical chains of causation. I think you put it beautifully. I'm not really going to add anything. <laughs> could, could you say... Could you say a few words, maybe, about uh, Proust as uh, how he uses uh, life to actually create a completely narrated uh, life of memories and how he exploits that talent of discovering that the power of writing? Uh, sorry, I did not explain Did you say that. Proust? Post, yes, Mark yes. said post, yes. Um, all right, confession time. I've only ever read vol one. I get oh, up... No. no, I haven't even read that. I've read chapter one. I get up to... I get, oh, look, I'm causing horror. Never mind. It's good to come out and be honest. You see, if I was a real fiction writer, I'd just lie through my teeth 
and rattle off something I read in the TLS last week. Because I'm a truthful ex-Catholic, um, I will confess, confessionally, that I get to the end of that chapter where he's with his auntie and the Madeleine brings it all back. And that's enough for me. I think I have read the second chapter. Um, I just think, yes, I know it's supposed to be a great novel and you should all immediately rush off and read it if you haven't already and then send me emails about it telling me what it's all about. <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for a really generous and, and um, uh, beautiful talk. Uh, you talked a little bit at the beginning about um, writing giving somehow a new meaning of power. Uh, and I thought that what you were doing tonight was uh, expressing and embodying the power of the imagination, which you called a kind of mind muscle, uh, the power of expression, the power of communication, the power of humour, and above all, the power of storytelling. I've been enwrapped in these stories, both of your own life and of other people's work. Um, so I want to thank you enormously for the talk you gave us tonight and, and for your presence here. Thank you. Thank you. Yes.